Hello, I'm Michael Cantrell, and you are listening to the Prison Officer Podcast, a place to have a conversation about the forgotten cops that work in this country's jails, prisons, and correctional centers. A place for me to try to make sense of a career spent working inside the fence with some of the greatest people that nobody sees or recognizes for the important job they do to keep this world safe. If you love this podcast, hit the follow button, or better yet, share with your family, friends, or coworkers. In more than 28 years of corrections, I have used or supervised Pepperball hundreds of times. Now, as a master instructor for Pepperball, I teach others about the versatility and effectiveness of the Pepperball system. From cell extractions to disturbances on the rec yard, Pepperball is the first option in my correctional toolbox. With ranges up to 150 feet and hoppers that can hold 160 rounds, Pepperball is perfect for controlling large crowds or group disturbances on your yard. Pepperball allows for non-lethal direct impact to control inmates who refuse to comply with lawful orders, and area saturation allows you to achieve buffer zones between groups or use it for area denial to keep inmates away from security equipment and other accessible areas. To learn more about Pepperball, go to www.pepperball.com or click the link below in this show's information guide. Pepperball is the safer option first. You know, for about uh, 14 of my 29 years working in corrections, um, I worked at the Federal Medical Center for Prisoners in Springfield, Missouri. Now, one of the major missions for uh, the USMCFP is inmates with mental illness. And anywhere you've worked in corrections, including myself, all the places I've worked, we come across inmates with mental illness. Now, uh, Springfield was kind of uh, a place where the Bureau collects some of the worst so that they can be treated. You know, a lot of people, of course, it's a medical center, so uh, we have all the medical staff there. But we also have forensic psychologists. We have psychiatrists there that can prescribe medication uh, for some of those inmates. And so it's a little bit probably higher level mental health inmates than what we run into out in the general population of our prisons. That doesn't mean that the other inmates aren't out there and that they're not just as dangerous. Um, You know, very early in my career there at Springfield, I think the first thing I noticed was, you know, inmates normally, I could tell if something was getting ready to happen. The way they looked at me, the way they carried their body, the posture they showed, and that kind of stuff. So if an inmate was going to attack me, you know, general population at Missouri State Penn or Leavenworth, I kind of had an idea what was coming. You can kind of square up, brace yourself, get ready for that fight. But working in the mental health unit, there's no clue coming on. Or I'm not going to say there's never any clue, but a lot of times there is no clue. There is nothing to tell you that they are fixing to attack or become violent or hurt themselves. It's not always about hurting you. Sometimes it's about hurting themselves. So I was very surprised at how quick a lot of things happened when I went to work at Springfield. Um, And I had to change the way I dealt with some inmates. When you're dealing with mental health inmates, you can't always, um, they don't understand everything that you're telling them. And so sometimes you may have to talk slower, go slower, give them a few moments in order to catch up to what's going on. Working with those inmates will really give you some insight. It truly will into um, mental illness. You'll learn a lot about mental illness, the different types. It's not just Mental illness is not just one thing. There's several different types. They affect individuals differently. Uh, so I learned a lot while I was there. And hopefully, I don't know, maybe we'll, maybe I'll pass along a little of that today. So uh, first, let's divide, define mental illness. You know, mental illness is a psychological or behavioral pattern generally associated with subjective distress or disability. Now, subjective distress, what does that mean? That means that you may not actually see the distress they're in, but in their mind and what they're seeing and what they're feeling, maybe even what they're hearing, they are under distress. And just because you don't see it or can't show that it's happening doesn't mean it's not vivid to them and doesn't mean that they're not under the same, you know, uh, stress as if it was actually happening to them. 
So that's one of the first steps. You've got to realize that some of the stuff that they think that they talk about may not be true and you may not see it and everything, all your senses tell you that that's not happening, but all of their senses tell them it is happening. And so you have to deal with it sometimes as if it is because to dismiss them or um, to not give them that opportunity to deal with it correctly uh, can turn that into a bigger crisis sometimes. So that's one of the things that, uh, you know, I had to learn early on with mental health. A couple of things about mental illness. Um, and if I say mental health, it's not, I, I don't mean to minimize. Mental health is something that we all need to think about and do and, and mental wellness. Mental illness is actually a disease that's defined and, and diagnosed. And sometimes I get the terms mixed up. I think a lot of people do. Uh, so if I do say mental health, <laughs> a lot of, in this instance, I'm, I'm talking about mental illness. Uh, a couple of things that people don't know about mental illness. For one, it can be short term or it can be long term. We expect that once you have mental illness, that it lasts forever. And that's not true for everybody. Some people work their way back out of mental illness. Some people uh, take medication and can recover from it. Um, but it isn't always forever, and it doesn't always last forever. Uh, mental illness can occur at any time in a person's life. Although, from what I understand, some of the illnesses um, are more prevalent in certain stages of a person's life, like dementia. You know, we expect to see dementia in an older person. So even though that doesn't mean somebody can't get dementia in their 30s, in general, people with mental illness are not more likely to be criminals. And I think sometimes we forget that. I think we think they go together, uh, that the lifestyle that leads them there, takes them down that path, is going to lead them to being criminal. Um, there are lots of people with mental illness who have no criminal thoughts and have no criminal behavior. So you still have to deal with the ones that we get inside, that they have reached that place in their life with not only mental illness, but with criminal behavior. And to me, those are two different things, and you have to deal with both of them. Um, I may be completely wrong on that, and I may get a bunch of emails after I get done with this. Uh, I'm sure I will with people telling me, well, that's not the way the uh, the DSM says, and that the diagnostic manual, which is what uh, a lot of forensic, doc forensic psychologists and doctors use to diagnose mental illnesses. Um, and I'm not pretending in any way whatsoever to be someone who understands it at that level. I'm just talking to you about what I saw. A couple of things that you'll notice differently, and these are, uh, I took this from a PowerPoint on mental illy, mentally ill inmates. Healthy people adjust their behavior and responses to the current situation. Mentally ill individuals do not. They tend to respond in one way to most situations. And uh, you will see that a lot. Uh, you will see that with guys who are used to being violent and who have mental illness and they're violent. They don't know a way to come up and talk to somebody normally to ask a question without being antagonistic or being, um, you know, worked up about it. They, they expect a certain response from everybody and they give everybody a certain response. And that makes it tough to deal with them sometimes. Healthy people filter their thoughts before they speak. Hmm. I don't know about that. I'm not good at that sometimes either. But uh, healthy people filter their thoughts before they speak and consider their behaviors before they act. Mentally ill individuals may not do that. Mentally ill individuals may respond in an exaggerated fashion to stressful situations. And you will notice that stress triggers a lot of the responses that we don't like from mentally ill inmates in prison. And when we take a look at that, prison is one of the most stressful places that anybody can be, whether that's officer or whether that's inmate. So stress tends to be their trigger, and they're constantly surrounded by stress. The chance of you having to deal with a mentally ill person acting out in prison is pretty good. Um, 
we have to keep our awareness up a little bit more than we might, even for working a penitentiary. Because like I said, with regular inmates, I can kind of tell you when that inmate's getting ready to attack or when he's planning something. With mental health, mentally ill inmates, I can't do that as well. Uh, they talk about there's a lot of factors that can cause mental illness, uh, difficult upbringing, uh, traumatic life events, prolonged exposure to stress, genes, uh, biological factors, and, of course, substance misuse. And I think that's a big one. It's something I've seen a lot of. Um, and that's not saying that someone who has that will have mental illness you know, that they've had trauma, they had stress when they were little. That doesn't necessarily mean they're going to have illness, but those risk factors for someone who's susceptible to that could increase their risk of it. So let's talk about mental illness in prison versus the United States. In the United States, now this is just general, in the United States, the population, one in four people deal with mental illness. What do you think about that? One in four people out there are dealing with mental illness. One percent of the population is affected by uh, schizophrenia. Now, that's a very serious mental illness, but think about that. One percent of the population. In the U.S., the annual economic indirect cost of mental illness is estimated to be around $79 billion. And this is uh, from about nine years ago. Uh, this information. So I'm sure it's well above that. But here's one that's interesting. Up to one half of homeless people have a serious mental illness. You know, we're dealing with homelessness across the country. And when you consider that maybe half of them are dealing with mental illness, that's a huge number. Here's another statistic for you. One in 10 individuals discharged from a state psychiatric hospital will be readmitted within 30 days. And I don't have the numbers on this right now, but the recidivism for mental health inmates that get out of prison has to be that high also. Um, and what I saw the most just in my own time was the nurses and the doctors did a good job. They'd get them on medication. They'd get them lined out. They'd go to pill line three times a day. Somebody would make sure that they did a mouth check and that they were taking their stuff and they would run smooth. And then we would kick them out, uh, put them back on the streets, and, and not without help. They don't just get dropped out. Uh, but we put them back on the streets. We give them a supply of medication. Uh, and they get out there, and they get to feeling like, well, I feel fine. I must not need this medication. So they quit taking the medication, and now they're headed back downhill. And pretty soon they're going to uh, you know, recommit a crime, get picked up or whatever, and come right back to jail. And I've, I've watched some of those guys, I don't even know how many times, uh, dozens of times, just make that circle back and forth. Uh, it's kind of sad that they, we don't have some way to, to have a pill line out there. I don't know. Uh, and for somebody to make sure that they're taking those meds, because a lot of them function well when they're medicated correctly. So that's just some of what I saw. Uh, people with serious mental illness die on average 25 years earlier. Now that's a stat, sad statistic. Uh, I'm sure they do. They, they end up like they talked about being homeless, uh, being in situations. We'll talk a little bit more about substance abuse that tends to go hand in hand with a lot of mental illness. So, um, yeah, they have these risk factors that probably is going to lessen their lifespan by quite a bit. So let's talk about the prevalence of mental illness in prison. And remember, some of this is nine years old. It could have changed a little. The likelihood of mental illness among people confined in state prisons and local jails is three to four times higher than in the general population. 15 to 19%, and I, I got these statistics from the feds. I don't have other statistics. 15 to 19% of federal inmates are estimated to suffer from mental illness. That's a fifth. That's 20%. 20% of the inmates that were taken care of in the federal system are estimated to be suffering from mental illness. And uh, a lot of people don't talk about this or know about this, but the rates of mental illness among female inmates is twice as high. 
that was male inmates, 15 to 19%. So with females, you're looking at 30% plus. Think about that. that that's crazy. Uh, 40% of federal inmates are estimated to suffer from a drug use disorder. And 75% of seriously mentally ill also suffer from a drug use disorder. So not only do they have a mental illness, but now they've got this drug use, uh, you know, substance abuse that they can't get past. And the chances of somebody recovering from that or being able to work their way through that without a ton of help is minimal. So I don't know what we do about it, but the statistics are huge. So let's talk about uh, some crisis intervention skills. And part of that is understanding uh, a little bit about what you're dealing with. And as a correctional officer, I don't, you know, I, I don't expect correctional officers to understand the DSM, the Diagnostic and Statistical Manual of Mental Disorders. Uh, but I, it does help if you understand what you're dealing with and some of the signs of the mental illness that you're dealing with. So let me go through a couple of those. You know, there's four primary categories of mental illness. Uh, the first ones you're going to see are cognitive disorders. Uh, psychotic disorders, mood disorders, and anxiety disorders. So for cognitive disorders, you know, um, delirium, dementia, those are some of what you'll see. And, and that makes sense when you think about it. Um, you know, our prison population is getting older all the time. And even there at the medical center, we had a couple of floors that were mostly old inmates who were dealing with old age problems. They were either, um, you know, at the medical center for medical things having to do with old age. Uh, some of them were in wheelchairs, walkers, couldn't get around. And then we had a whole section of them that uh, had cognitive disorders. You know, they had dementia. Uh, they couldn't remember where they were. And, and sometimes when those guys get violent, you know, they think people are coming after them because they have a whole different uh, grasp of what's happening to them and what reality is. So, uh, and they get very frustrated. They get frustrated easily because people don't understand what they're trying to say or don't, or don't see what they see. You know, some of those guys with dementia, uh, you know, they think their wife's still alive. They think they're not in prison. And here you show up as a, uh, a correctional officer and you're telling him he is in prison and he can't leave the floor. He can't get on the elevator in his mind. Uh, you know, he's in an apartment building trying to get on an elevator. So that can be really difficult, and you're dealing with someone who doesn't understand reality. But that's some of the cognitive disorders. Psychotic disorders, um, of course, we've heard these. Um, you really have to have a little bit of uh, medical knowledge to be able to differentiate between some of these. But schizophrenia and delusional disorders. Now, schizophrenia, uh, in my experience, comes in a lot of different forms. But it tends to be people who are full of anxiety. They're scared. They uh, they think people are after them a lot. Um, you know, and I've seen a lot of that over the over the years. Where uh, you know, we had one guy that kept wearing uh, potato chip bags on his head uh, because he believed that you know the radio waves from the government were getting in his brain. I had several of those. Uh, that believed that the government was trying to get into their brain, you know, really hard to deal with them. They don't see the world like you see the world. The next one would be uh, mood disorders. And these are depressive disorders and uh, bipolar disorder. These are, uh, you know, these can turn into suicide. Um, these are guys that are dealing with a lot of depression. It's hard to get them out of their head and the negative thoughts that they've got. Um, it's hard to deal with them. They they don't see anything but what bad is going on to them. And when you think about it, you're living in prison. It's pretty easy to see the bad that's happening to you. So getting them out of that thought process is, is very difficult. And the final one is going to be anxiety disorders. And those are... Uh, guys who have panic attacks, that have phobias, uh, obsessive-compulsive obsessive disorder. 
And, you know, we, we tease a lot about you got a buddy that's OCD because he keeps the desk, you know, perfectly straight. Well, these, these are obsessive compulsive disorders that actually are so bad that they affect a person's life. Uh, this isn't just, you know, keeping your desk straight or, or ironing your shirt too much. And then, of course, PTSD is another one of those anxiety disorders that falls in that category. There are some other types of mental health problems. And while these disorders may not come to mind when you think of mental illness, um, they are, in fact, mental health disorders. And one of those is personality disorders. And we we run across the inmates that, uh, you know, we, we say they're antisocial. Uh, there's a lot of correctional officers that are antisocial, uh, but when it affects your life to the point that you can't function, that's when it becomes a uh, mental health problem. Borderline personality disorders. Now, these are probably the toughest guys to deal with. There's a couple of different personality disorders out there, and um, I know at one time at the Federal Medical Center, they actually uh, put together an entire floor. Um, trying to deal with the guys that had borderline personality disorder, just dealing with them. And some of the things that some of the symptoms that you'll see with those guys is, you know, they're unstable and uh, they have intense interpersonal relationships. They don't do anything a little bit. They can't be normal. They either, how do I put that? They either want nothing to do with you or they want everything to do with you. And it gets to the point that even if they're not violent, some of those guys, they're the ones that just wear you out. They're at the desk, they're at the door, you know, a hundred times a day. Uh, so that's one of the things that you'll see. Uh, these guys are highly reactive. Uh, brushing off their feelings, brushing off what they're talking about can cause an immediate violent attack. It can also cause them to go uh, hurt themselves. You know, they do that quite a bit. They have chronic feelings of, you know, being lonely and stuff like that. They're very impulsive. They do uh, self-damaging acts quite a bit. You know, we have, I don't even know how many, some of the strangest things I've seen, uh, you know, while in prison have to do with these guys, uh, these inmates. One of them. <laughs> you know, you got a lot of these guys that wear coats, even in the summer, they got these long sleeve coats on and I'm passing out chow one day in the housing unit. And I noticed there was a little bit of blood on the sleeve of one of the, um, one of the inmate coats that he was wearing. And so I pulled him off to the side. I knew, I mean, I knew that he was one of the guys that hurts himself. So I pulled him off to the side where everybody wasn't looking. And I said, take your, uh, take your coat off for me. I want to take a look. And he was a little hesitant, but not too much. And when he pulled his coat off, he had probably, I don't even know, probably 15 cuts um, down each arm. And they had been cut uh, many days ago uh, so that they bled and they were pussy. They were getting infected and his arms were just these, uh, you know, just disgusting. I don't even know how else to explain it. Uh, so that was one of the things I saw. I saw a lot of guys who would uh, hurt themselves by putting uh, foreign objects in their body. And that could be, you know, in their in their penis. It could be any place. Uh, we had one guy and I, I got to see him and take him to the hospital who had punctured his gut with a sharpened toothbrush, a pencil, and... I forget what the other one was. There was three things sticking out of his gut. And these guys don't do it to, you know, necessarily try to kill theirself. I said, I've talked to him several times because I probably went to the hospital. I probably took him out on medical uh, trips at least two dozen times. He, he did that over and over and over again until he finally had injured himself, you know, over the course of 10 years to the point that, uh, you know, it affected his health and he died, but he would, he would stick something into his gut. And I asked him, I was like, uh, why do you do that? You know? And he said, I get stress inside of me. And when I push that and when it punctures the gut, he says it relieves my stress. I could just, it just takes my anxiety and my stress away. And 
not that I understand it. Uh, I didn't understand, you know, his feelings, but that's what he told me about it. So that was pretty crazy, uh, seeing some of that, uh, guys who would put sporks and batteries and stuff like that in their penis, you know, and then we have to take them down to the hospital and get that stuff removed. Just, you know, those are the inmates that uh, they're almost impossible to take care of and to keep them from harming themselves because they'll, they'll harm themselves and they'll feel better. And then they're, you know, they make great orderlies. They're bouncing around the unit. They're happy until they're not. And then when they're not, they go off in a corner somewhere and they injure themselves. Yeah, the borderline personality disorder guys, uh, you know, those were the ones that were the the hardest to work with, in my opinion. And we, we seem to have a lot of them where I was at. So, And then finally, there is, you know, uh, substance abuse disorders. You know, substance abuse disorders, um, it's the overindulgence in a drug or chemical, you know, whatever. And when that starts leading to effects that are detrimental to one's physical or mental health or the welfare of others, you know, it's, it's the difference between, you know, having a beer once in a while, having a drink once in a while to every night when you get off work, slamming a 12 pack. You know, at, at that point, you're you're talking about abuse of alcohol. You're using it to to modify your behavior, to modify your thoughts. Uh, you know, having a drink once in a while isn't. And I'm not just talking about alcoholic. Of course, it can be any substance. You know, even um, you know, there's prescribed substances out there that used under a doctor's supervision and used correctly uh, help people have a better, more productive life. But when you know you start taking too many of them. And then it starts affecting your life when you start developing a tolerance to it. And then finally, one of the other types, and this is some of these are just crazy to deal with also. Um, and I don't know that the one is still in here. So I'm going to talk about uh, one of them is paraphilias. And nine years ago, gender identity, gender identity disorder was still listed. And I will have to look that up because I think someone told me that that has been pulled out of the DSM um, and that it's no longer listed as a uh, mental health disorder. So, but sexual disorders, um, some of these are going to be the most shocking. Some of these are going to be the ones that really, you know, throw you for a loop. Uh, if you're not around that kind of stuff, and I hadn't been till I went to work in, in prison, and I had not been around that, hadn't been exposed to that type of thing until I went to work in prison. And some of that can be extremely shocking. So paraphilias involve sexual arousal to objects, situations, or individuals that are outside of the norm. Okay. That could be fetishism. That can be sexual sadism. Um, or it can even be pedophilia, which, uh, you know, dealing with the the child molesters the the pedophiles in prison is is probably one of the other toughest things that we have to do uh as correctional officers how do you deal with a person who gets sexual arousal from not normal things right now i can't think of a lot of examples of guys who were sexually aroused, uh, voyeurism falls in here and you do have a lot of inmates that enjoy voyeurism. You know, they're, they're going to, uh, when you're doing rounds and stuff, they're going to want you to look at their junk and they're going to be walking around naked. You know, when the nurse is doing pills, that's when they want to be masturbating. Uh, so you're going to see stuff like that. So voyeurism is one that we deal with quite a bit. Uh, but the pedophiles, that's, they usually, and I don't know, things have changed so much lately. I, I may not be able to speak in generalities anymore. At one time, pedophiles pretty much lived in the PC units, uh, protective custody units. Now, not so much. They're out on the yard. But they get sexually excited, excited from uh, children, from the visual aspect of children, from looking at, you know, pictures of children. I have seen where they. Uh, a lot of people think you put a pedophile in prison and, you know, it goes away because they they're not around children. And what I've seen is these guys will have, you know, they'll take clippings from newspapers and from, 
magazines and whatever of, of children, and they'll make these picture books out of that, uh, where they still get aroused by that. It also it makes me wonder, and, and you know, I always was cautious, but I wonder why other people aren't more cautious about what their children post on the internet. You know, because there are pedophiles out there that are enjoying those pictures, whether or not you think it's just something normal or not. You're ten or eleven year old uh, playing outside in the pool, and you've posted a picture on Facebook because it's cute. Well. There's pedophiles out there that look at that in a whole different way. I don't post stuff like that uh, on the internet, never did, and don't think anybody else should, but that's my personal opinion. So, yeah, when we talk about pedophiles and child pornography, uh, a lot of people don't realize it's it's not the pornography that you think it is. These people are excited by the sight of children, and it doesn't have to be uh, what most people would have in their mind is what sexual or, or what child pornography is. So you have to be aware of that and you have to pay attention to those people who have uh, these paraphilias because even though a lot of that has to do with them and what they do, they cause a lot of disruption in your housing units. Uh, when other inmates find that there's a pedophile living there or find uh, an inmate who might be a voyeur or an inmate who might be uh, collecting pictures of children, there's a good chance you're going to have a fight. You're going to have an assault happen on that unit. So it's not like you can ignore what they do. When you find that stuff in the in their cell, it's time to take it. You got to get it out of there. The stuff they collect will continue to grow until you have a real problem. I'm not going to go into gender identity today. Um, like I said, I don't know if it's still in the DSM. I know it's a problem having, uh, and that many of the prisons are having problems with male inmates going to female institutions and female. You know, I don't know if we've got any females going to male institutions, but uh, how do you deal with that? That's a discussion, and I probably have to bring more people in for that. So let's uh, let's see. So let's talk about crisis intervention skills. We've talked about some of these areas, some of what I've seen, some of what I've dealt with, some of what you might deal with. But how do you how do you deal with these people with mental illness? And there is no one way. Uh, you know, we had a couple of officers, and it's true. You know, they call them the mental health whisperer because they were really good at going and talking to mental health inmates. Uh, they could calm them down. They could walk them back to the cell. They could, you know, take care of these situations without having to put a team together and go in there and, and uh, you know, get control of these people sometimes. So uh, what's some of the things we can do? Well, first, I think more so than any other type of inmate, and I, I've talked in other episodes about being the same every day. You know, if if you're an asshole and you're an asshole at home, then be an asshole every day. If you're a good guy, then be a good guy every day. You can't swap back and forth. Um, be who you are when you walk into work. And that should be a professional correctional officer uh, at whatever. You can be grumpy. You can be happy. Whatever it is that you are, be that. But don't change it up. And I know working mental health units, uh, exclusively mental health units, that even subtle changes in my attitude during the day can cause big problems in those units because those guys aren't good at, they're not good at dealing with change. They're not good with dealing with uh, different emotions. Uh, so I would say that's the number one thing that you can do is be the same person every day when you walk into those units or when you walk or when you're dealing with those mental illness inmates, mental mental health inmates. Try to adopt an, a non-threatening posture when you're dealing with them. They don't understand the nuances in, in, in human interactions, okay? And as a correctional officer, I'm really bad, you know, to uh, have an interaction with someone, have my arms crossed. You know, and, uh, you know, this is the way I talk to them. Uh, I'm in that defensive posture where I can bring my hands up quick if I need to defend myself. So 
with the mental health inmates, see if you can lessen that posture just a little bit because they're going to read into that. Now, that doesn't mean that you get closer to them. Uh, matter of fact, I like to deal with them in a, with an extra step than I would with a regular inmate. I like to take an extra step back, deal with them, give them a little bit of distance, and gives me a little bit more distance to react. They don't feel so pressured. They don't feel like you're, you know, yelling at them or on top of them, um, you know, berating them, whatever. So uh, if you can take that step back, kind of drop your posture a little bit, not in a non-defensive way, but just don't make it so prevalent. Try to display an understanding with them. And like we talked about earlier, just because you don't see what they say is going on doesn't mean that they don't see it. In their mind, what they're telling you is going on. Even when you look around and and none of that's happening, in their mind it's happening. That doesn't mean you have to become part of their, their thoughts, their problems, but you have to be really careful not to do that. But you can display some understanding. And I'm going to tell you... Pretty early on in my career, here's here's where I learned this the first time, not to delve off into their psychosis. You know, uh, they have these thoughts in their head. They believe a certain thing, and you can't make fun of it, and you can't become part of it uh, because when you when you have to do your job or be removed from it, it becomes a real problem. And uh, I was working at Missouri State Pen in the old death row, and there was an inmate down there. And whenever we'd feed trays, I'd walk by and he would he would leave these little folded up notes on his tray when he'd turn them back in. Well, out of curiosity, you know, I open it up, see, you know, is it a laundry list? You know, what is it? Well, you'd open it up and it would say, uh, you know, I work for the CIA. Uh, let them know where I'm at. Call this number. And so, you know, the first couple of times I'm like, this is nuts, but I got to talking to the other officers. And so one day we, uh, you know, we even called the number a couple of times because the number usually changed. It was never the same. It was whatever number he made up, um, but we called the number. It was nothing, but every day he'd give me these little notes and I never pushed them away. I never really said anything. And, uh, so he got to believing, I think that I was being part of this. One day, I don't know why, it was summer, I was feeling frisky, I'd come into work, it was, you know, just one of those days when you feel good. And so I was a little bit playful that day. And so he hands me this little note, and I unfold it, and it's the same stuff. So I reach up, and in my shirt pocket, I've got an ink pen, so I pull my ink pen up, and I go, uh, oh, yeah, chief. I go, it's for you. And just playing around, just being funny. But in his mind, I had been going along with him by taking those notes for weeks, and now I was making fun of him. And ended up, they had to do a cell extraction on him. He was trying to hurt himself and took several officers uh, to get in there and get him out of there. And we ended up having to put him in restraints uh, because he was trying to injure himself. And all of that was because I had eventually or I had, you know, taken him down this road of belief. I'd walked into his little psychosis or his little fantasy world, whatever it was. And then I, when I, you know, made fun of him, that just jerked him out of there. And, and he thought that I was the enemy now. And he, he wanted after me without a doubt. If he could have got through those bars, he'd attack me. Um, but that was when I found out, you know, pretty early in my career there that you can't play with this stuff. There's no room for that. The best thing you can do is be who you are and be that every day. Uh, Be consistent, right? Uh, Be firm, be fair, be consistent. And that will help you the most when you're dealing with the mental health inmates. They need consistency. They can't handle it it when when things change. So sometimes, and this this takes a little bit of a... a delicate thought process sometimes. But when you're dealing with inmates who have that that breakdown going on at that moment, and the only thing they see is you preventing them from this, I've found that it works sometimes as if they can have an option, okay? 
You know, their OODA loop is stuck. It's stuck on that record. They they can't see anything else. And an option doesn't mean they get out of trouble or anything like that. But sometimes, instead of saying, come here and cuff up, come here and cuff up, you know, and doing the same thing over and over again, where it's just you battling them and it's a battle of wills, ask them, so how can I get the cuffs on you? I've got to bring you out. We've got to put cuffs on you. I've got to search your cell. I've got to do medication, whatever it is. Ask them. So how can I get you to go ahead and cuff up? How can we do this? And let them think about that. And sometimes when they when they have to think about it, it kind of resets what's going on in their brain at that moment. It, it gives them the opportunity to think about something else in a different manner. I don't know if that makes sense or not, but uh, a lot of times I find if I can give them a choice, you know, uh, stand up, stand up. Well, how about sit down? Hey, there's a chair. Sit down there. I can probably still go put a hand on this inmate, get control of him and cuff him while he's sitting, right? I don't have to have him standing up. So would you rather sit or would you rather stand? I've got to put cuffs on you. Which one would you want? And give them that choice and let them think. And it does. It kind of interrupts that OODA loop on them. And they have to start thinking about something else. They have to start making a, a decision. And sometimes, in my opinion, that helps. So uh, that's something I would uh, definitely say. With that, set appropriate limits. Make sure that they know there are limits. Even if things look crazy to them, they need to know that we are still in prison, that you are still in charge, and that there are limits to what we can do here. Don't ever take that away. It's kind of like with hostage negotiation. You don't let them just ask for anything in the world. We're not bringing in airplanes. Are you want to talk about a pizza? We, we can talk about a pizza. Okay. But you just, you have to set the appropriate limits. We have to work within a few more things. And we, we talked about some of this, um, you know, posture, make sure that you're showing the correct posture, that you're not showing up as that, you know, aggressive correctional officer. Um, Direct eye contact sometimes can be confronting. Uh, so maybe you want to step back a little bit. You might want to take a step off to the side because, you know, even us as correctional officers, if I come straight up at you, nose to nose, looking my eyes into your eyes, you're going to feel aggression. So kind of take that step off to the side. You might be able to look at them a little bit from, you know, the side. You don't have to do it from your peripheral vision. I don't want you putting yourself in a situation of danger, but maybe not direct eye contact. Um, avoid audiences. You know, that's something, and that's something I did throughout my career, not only with inmates, but with staff also. If you're going to have to discipline a staff member, we don't do that in front of others. If I have to talk to an inmate, I don't do that in front of others, and there's two reasons for that. One, I don't want them souping up other inmates, so now I have to deal with a group, but you can have a better conversation with an inmate if he's not in front of an audience. If you've given him an audience, he feels like he's got to, you know, stud up and, and has to act a certain way. So take him off to the side and step out in the hallway. Don't take him someplace that puts you in a dangerous position. It still needs to be public, maybe under a camera so control center can see you, but not in front of the other inmates. And you can have those discussions a little bit better that way. Speak firmly, slowly, clearly. Uh, things do get misinterpreted. You got to realize their brain is going like 100 miles an hour sometimes. And so if you're talking fast, they're not going to catch all of it. So learn to talk, you know, slowly, clearly firmly with them um, so that they understand you're there to help, you know, or what you do need from them and that it's reasonable, right? And, you know, some people are going to, some people are going to come to me and they're going to go, well, you, you know, all this stuff you're telling me, it's going to make me look weak. I don't want you to look weak. Um, there's nothing wrong with letting an inmate know that you're not going to tolerate violence or aggression. We're going to have a discussion here. I'd like to hear what you have to say. I'm sure you have, you know, a, a reason 
for thinking this way. So let's talk about it. But you're not going to stand there and cuss at me. You're not going to, you know, be aggressive. You're not going to get in a position to where you look like you're going to attack me. You don't have to put up with that kind of stuff. But that doesn't mean that we can't calm the situation down, that we can't take that step back, that we can't, uh, you know, avoid a little bit of eye contact with them. The stuff we've talked about already, we can do that. But that doesn't mean we give up ground. So I don't want you to misinterpret what I'm saying there. And one more thing I'll say is be careful thinking you can handle it by yourself, especially with mental health and mental illness inmates. Um, You can't always handle it by yourself. So maybe earlier even than what you would with a normal general population inmate, maybe even a little bit earlier, I would want to get somebody down there or get them walking that way doesn't necessarily have to be an alarm, you know, if you're talking to an inmate and things are feeling like this could escalate, doesn't necessarily have to be an an alarm at that moment, but to get on the radio and say, hey, Bravo, can, can you step down here for a minute and just let them know that you'd like someone to be there. Uh, sometimes having more than one person there and, uh, you know, can be a plus, uh, while you're talking to them, while you're talking, trying to talk them down. Now, some people also blow these situations up. I don't need a person coming in there. And if if you've been called down there, don't be that person. Don't run right up in the middle of it and become part of that discussion. Hang back. Step back to the side. The inmate needs to know that you're there to support that officer. But you don't necessarily have to be part of that conversation. Does that make sense? Because the officer, unless he asks for help, doesn't need it at that point. They just need your support. So stand back, you know, a few feet back. The inmate can feel that you're there. He can feel that your presence is there and that you're supporting that officer. Uh, But you don't need to become part of that conversation, especially if it's a known uh, mental illness inmate. You know, and I guess the final thing I'll talk about that you'll probably deal with quite a bit is going to be those, and they could be borderline personality disorder, they could be depressive, but you're dealing with those inmates that are self-injurious or contemplating attempting suicide. So what do you do with that? Um, Well, this is, you know, extremely difficult to manage, but one of the things I never do is not talk about the elephant in the room. You know, if they're talking about, I'm going to hurt myself, you absolutely can talk back to them about, well, why would you hurt yourself? You know, we don't pretend like they're not going to hurt themselves because these guys will often, uh, if you pretend like you don't know what they're talking about, like you don't think that they'll do it, guess what they'll do? You're absolutely right. They will injure themselves just to show you. Whenever I'm dealing with those guys, it's very important that you're honest with them. You don't want to do that. You know, you did that a few weeks ago and you didn't get anything positive out of it. You know, you ended up uh, hurting yourself. You ended up losing privileges. Uh, So let's figure out another way to get her out of this, to get you to where you're not feeling so stressed, to get you to where you're not feeling like you need to injure yourself. What can we do? And put it back on them once again. With a lot of the mental health inmates, I find that if they, um, If they have to think that it can slow down some of those thoughts that are just bombarding them at that moment, that that's just one of the things I would say is if you're dealing with those guys, don't be afraid to talk about it um, or to definitely don't ignore what they're feeling or what they're saying or what they're telling you that they're going to do. Uh, Because I've seen that a lot of times where somebody blew them off. Oh, you're not really going to do it. You're just, you're trying to get attention. Well, guess what? They get their attention. And then we're dealing with, you know, someone who's committed suicide or attempted suicide. So let's get them thinking about something else. Um, That's the number one trick that I use in those situations when I'm dealing with somebody like that. So, well, it looks like I've. (laughs) looks like I've talked quite a bit on this subject. Uh, We may talk about it more. I might bring in someone, uh, you know, I know a couple of psychologists still who uh, might be willing to come in here and talk about some of this, but those are just, you know, what I've seen over the years 
from my perspective, and I did spend many years in the mental health units, um, saw a lot of stuff. I wish I could have stopped more of it, but some of it you can't. You can't. Um, you can't change other people's behavior always. And mental illness is something that is extremely hard to manage, extremely hard to stop, extremely hard to, and oftentimes extremely hard to deal with the repercussions of. Because I've got visions in my mind that, uh, you know, you're you're never going to get rid of some of those. And I'm sure some of you have that too. And a lot of those were mental health inmates or people with mental illness who did things to themselves that uh, it, it just defies rational thought, right? Which is what makes it mental illness. Just, you know, the most important thing is take the time to talk. Take the time to listen. That's what we do best in corrections. And when you're dealing with those guys, uh, you need to do it a little bit more. And just don't put yourself in the position to get hurt. Uh, listening and talking should never put you in a position where you're not ready, where you're not uh, prepared to deal with whatever's coming at you. Uh, with mental health inmates, you're not always going to know when when it's going to happen. So, well, I hope you learned a little something, and uh, I'll talk at you next episode. Thank you. I would like to take a minute to thank one of our sponsors that make the Prison Officer Podcast possible. Omni RTLS is a company that I've been working with for the last year. I am proud to be part of this team of correctional professionals who have developed the best real-time locating system on the market today. With Omni's real-time location technology, you automatically know the accurate locations and interactions of all inmates, staff, and assets anywhere in your correctional facility, and you have this information in real time. Omni is cutting-edge software for today's jails and prisons. It is the only way to monitor every square inch of your facility while still being PREA compliant. Go to www.omnirtls for more information and to make your facility safer today. That's www.omnirtls.com. If you enjoy these podcasts, the best way to support the Prisoner Officer Podcast is to share these episodes with your friends or, or family on social media. Let me invite you to visit www.theprisonofficer.com. If you haven't already, check out the Prison Officer Podcast on Facebook and click that little follow button. Or leave us a message, or better yet, leave us a review. And if you're listening to us on Apple Podcasts, Google, or Spotify, please click the subscribe button. Until next time, I'm Mike Cantrell. Watch your back, and please take care of each other out there behind those walls.